Welcome to Biblio Observatory, a new series of the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices. I am Yvette Villarreal, Biblio Observatory hostess. And I am Caroline Smith, the Inclusive Services Consultant at the South Carolina State Library. This is a special transmission from Columbia, South Carolina, to explore the universe of books and stories that people treasure from their childhood and how those stories define the lives of people touched by them. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Charles Brooks III, and we are so happy to have him today here. I happened to meet him in, back in 2003, <laughs> and it is such a joy to welcome you today, Charles, to our, our Biblio Observatory podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I must add, though, uh, I have a middle name, and I must add that uh, for my mother said to me, your name is Charles Brooks, but I give you David. So you are David. And so I grew up as David. In the business world or outside world, it was Charles Brooks. My business name in the world of theater is Charles David Brooks III. And David will honor my mother for she gave me that name, David. David. David is the story of my life, according to my mother. David is the book I wrote as I live, page by page. Charles Brooks is a cover-up. It's a masquerade. It identifies me with uh, school, you know, work, social security, you know, all those things. Driver's license, but David, David is my name. What would you like our listeners to know about you? That is true. I am born in the North in a village called Harlem. And there, as a child, and I really do not want to use the word child because it gives connotations of what a child is today. And a child then, as I'm born in 1939, a child then was a a little person. And being a little person, uh, I was responsible meaning uh, my mother had no fear at the age of three that I would walk down the streets with some of the older boys, which um, mothers and fathers were friends of my mother and father. So it was a family thing. They just was older. Uh, But they had to watch over me because I was younger. And on Saturday mornings, we would go to St. Nicholas, Avenue, there was a subway there around 125th Street. It was during World War II, and uh, troops were leaving with their little military bags going down the subway, but before going down the subway, uh, they would stop to watch me and my little group do soft shoe, which was another form for foot or hoofing, as we used to say. And um, so I would be there, and I could see these mothers and daughters and sons and 
loved ones, girlfriends, and they hugging on each other. And in my mind's eye, I could see that I knew what time it was so that I knew going down that subway after they released each other from the hugs that they may never see each other again. I knew that. And it gave me a special interest. And I looked each person in the eyes and I saw a glow in their eyes and I believe to this day that glow was me. And so we would do our little, they would do their little soft shoe. And since I was so little, I was supposed to uh, pick up the little pennies, nickels and dimes as they hit the little pot. And if it didn't go in, it would roll off and I would scramble to pick up the change and put it back in the pot. But, But I would constantly be looking back to see what they were doing because I wanted to get into it too. But I still was handling the money and uh, uh, the audience would laugh and giggle, you know, because evidently they, they, I appeared to be cute to them, you know, and so that was okay, because, you know, they were being happy for a moment. And then one day, boom, I was leading the group. I had learned the routine. And so they dressed me up in a little uh, knickerbocker suit. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. They had stockings and pants came up so far, because I was a little guy. And, only men wore long pants. And that was the way it was in those days. So the little knickerbocker suit, and I had a nice little tweed tam to go with the tweed knickerbocker suit. And all this was dressed up on the corner as the people took care of me. And of course, I would come home, when I would come home, I emptied my pockets on the kitchen table, you know, hey, mommy. <laughs> you know, so my story begins with me. And so as a child performer, uh, I learned uh, how to conduct myself, handle myself. I knew when to speak, when not to speak. Uh, I met some of the greatest people in the world at that day that I eventually performed with who began to teach me diff- even some languages, like a little French, parlez-vous français, a little this, y'all espagnol, or whatever, these little things I learned. So I was being educated. As a child, even ran into, or rather Fred Astaire ran into me <laughs> because, you know, he, he was fascinated with children and he would sponsor children production, which I was a part of. So I was eventually going into the mainstream of things. And then a, a man um, in suit came one day to us and offered us a street corner on 7th and Broadway in front of a Cafe Metropole, where a drummer by the name of Gene Cooper, Cooper, who was the husband of Pearl Bailey, would play drums in the window, and he was a quite a drummer. And we would hoof to his beats, and here you could see, like, oh, look like a million sea of people with black suits and little bowl caps, <laughs> hats during that time, out there just watching us, and of course, you know, with those monies, was a lots of money. So as a child doing World War II, I was bringing home lots of money. So I was doing my part as far as I was concerned in my head. I was making my contribution, you know, to the family. I didn't consider taking any money for myself because at the time I didn't think, I think in terms that I needed anything. You know, they all went to the house. And so that went on, and... Uh, then uh, uh, 
truant officer came around in New York City, truant officers, right? And he said, well, how old are you? You know, then he wanted, well, where's your family? You know, and then he, he should be in school. And I didn't know what the school, what the heck, I didn't really know no school. I was in school. I was learning more than anyone could ever imagine. So, and I was very reluctant about it. <clears throat> so I went to school. And there was this long line of registering students. And it was leading down this hallway, and I saw an opening, and it looked dark, and I wondered what was in that darkness. So as I got closer and closer to the table to register, I kind of peeked in there, and it was like an auditorium. It was like a theater. It was like a, a theater. I said, well, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be, another level of theater, from street theater to, you know, uh, institutional theater or public education theater. And I didn't know that some of the teachers were watching me and I wasn't paying attention who was watching and who was not. I was just exploring the environment and, and, and seeing where I fit in. And evidently they saw that. Fortunately for me, these teachers Mr. Roberts, Mr. Workman, Mrs. Martin, and all them, I can remember some names. They were Broadway entertainers working as teachers. And evidently, they, they tapped on me. So Mr. Workman says, well, you're going to go upstairs and work with me in the workshop so I can show you about sets and things like that. And then Mr. Roberts said, well, you know, he was doing a play on Broadway at the time. And he said, well, I'm going to work with you on developing uh, some theatrics and that kind of thing. And the next thing I know, that little auditorium, as it was, became a theater for me, and I'm on that stage um, conducting the Pirates of Penza. I remember that was my first major production. How old? The Pirates of Penza. I was six. <laughs> Do you have any picture? I'm sure there must be some somewhere. But, you know... Um, in between that time, my mother, uh, we had to separate. And uh, this was one of the most difficult parts of my life at the time between the age of three and six. Um, Dad had to go off to the Army. And uh, mother had to go and work and pick up where he's, he left off at. And little children went to work in, in the factories and those who had people in the South who had farm or were farmers would go then. We had people, my mother and father from Barnwell County, South Carolina, and we had farm there, the, the butlers, uh, and, and my mother's graduated of Claflin University in Arnsburg, and my granduncles and aunts, they were all college graduates, so many of them been to the attended to Benedict Institute, and they had schools that they built, Butler High School, Butler Elementary School, this, that, and the other. And so there, down, uh, uh, so, but getting there was the situation where, where my life seemed to make a, made a actually made a turn, because we was at the Pennsylvania Railroad Station, which is now where Madison Square Garden is in Manhattan, and we were on the platform, and the train is right there, my mother, she's bent down to where myself and my sisters stood, 
and she's looking at me and she's telling me, now you must be my little man. So I want you to take care of your sister, and I'm not even six yet. I want you to take care of your little sister. She, they put shipping tags on us. And I'm going to want you to take care of your sisters. Don't, interf- don't interfere with whatever they do. You be on the outskirts of them and be nearby just to watch them to make sure there'd be no danger. And as soon as I can, I will come get you. And here's a picture of your godmother. So, and listen out. And when you hear Denmark, South Carolina, the porter will say Denmark. Then when you get off, you look and when you see a woman look at and she had everything on her as she was dressed in that photo. I couldn't miss her. And we all ran toward us and women used to wear frocks where they could open it up like this, like birds do with, with, with feathers, with wings. And we ran into her and she covered us around with her frock. And so we knew we were safe. And so uh, that was, but then I watched my sisters and I remember one day they had a wood pile, pine wood, and it was a red snake I saw watching it. And I, I saw this and I didn't know whether it was poisonous or not. All I knew was there was an ax there and not to disturb them, I went and chop, chopped it in half so it wouldn't attack them. And she saw that, my godmother Ruth Bartley saw that and she came outside and she said, let's move it over here and we got to burn it because it can grow another head and be alive again. And I remember looking out the window uh, out there all night long until it turned to ashes <laughs> so it wouldn't come <laughs> back alive again. So, uh, but anyway, I had to school there in, uh, in New York because we went back to, she did come get us and went back to New York. Um, I also did dancing, uh, I mean, real dancing international cultural dances. I did Russian, Bakula, whatever. I, 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 oh. I did Western, uh, uh, something, what is it? Scoop to the Lou, da, 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 da. Uh, what, was, what was the name of that thing? I don't remember all the dances. <laughs> but we did a lot of different dances in costumes. And that was sponsored by the New York City Cultural Arts Affairs during that time. And so, uh, but that's the story of my, my childhood life, and eventually I grew up. Went in the military at the age of 17. I left home uh, to go off into the world. I uh, wanted to uh, make room. My family had grown from myself and my two, my two sisters to another two sisters and a brother. And in my mind's eye, at 17, attending boys' high school in Brooklyn, New York, the famed boys' high school, where um, uh, Sam Livingston and Alfred Drake. And Alfred Drake was a prominent Broadway actor, but they were alumni. And they had this drama room where they would come, and those of us that was interested in drama would sit and listen to them do what I'm doing right now. Their stories was telling about their experiences as I'm telling my story. And, uh, but the thing about Alfred Drake is I had access to the backstage on Broadway where he was performing. And so I had entry and I became familiar with what the workings of the backstage, the crew, the gaffers, the everything, the painters, costume designers, this, that, and the other. 
which eventually I found that I had a cousin, Estina, who was the costume designer at the Apollo Theater. So now I would go up there and sit with her and look over the stage and see the performance. And so my life just evolved like that. The military, I went in again to make room and then to find out whether I whether I'm a man or not. You know, I mean, and when I say that, I'm talking about being away from the family, being away from the community, being away from people that have watched over me all of my life up until 17 years old. Could I survive? Could I deal with it with this big wide world out here without those kinds of comfort zones or protections? And so I went off into the military. And uh, well, that was an experience. Uh, there, you know, I won't go too deep into that. You said don't get too heavy. <laughs> so I won't get into the psychological, <laughs> biological, and chemical warfare <laughs> techniques and methods. So we'll move on from there. And I returned home. By that time I returned, uh, we was in Brooklyn, and um, there uh, I had a series of experiences that I never anticipated that I would have, and I proceeded to start writing. And I wrote lyrics, and those lyrics went into uh, to Broadway to become recordings, 45 recordings, and then I did some producing and some road managing with production companies and that kind of thing. And so they, everything just continued that way. Um, dealt with all the hitters, you know, uh, uh, Joe, uh, yeah, uh, Morris Levy, all those people that own record companies and everything. And I was kind of building myself up a little bit too. And that's when I discovered that when the, in the world, in the real business world, as I was becoming a bit more enhance with knowledge and actually hands on to business and dealing with business that it would bring out all these other business people, Leonard Feathers, uh, Mars Levy, Joe Barr, all these big time guys, and um, which then would try to muscle me. And then that's when I realized that show business wasn't just show business. It was show and then it's business. And the business part of it had to be taken care of. And so therefore, I had to make certain stances and to make myself as known as well as anybody else. You know, not for you to become frightened of me, but to let you know that I can stand on my own. And by that time, I said, well, it's time for me to relocate. So I went on out to California to jump into the motion picture industry. So when I went out there, I went to the Knowles Building on Hollywood Boulevard, they had a sign said, office for rent. And old man Knowles was outside the building when I ran up onto him and told him I just got out here. Uh, my father was my banker, uh, looking to establish myself. I see you have an office for rent. I don't have any money right now, but I'd be able to handle my business. He says, I believe you would. Took me up and there I have my offices. Gigantic Enterprises, Motion Picture Company. Wow. <laughs> and then I put a sign out, all the people who have unrepresented 
come and see me. I will represent you. And here are all these people, actors, dancers, uh, comedians, acrobats, everybody. Someone came up. Uh, and then you have all these people coming around you that wants to help. Says, look, you need a license and went downtown and for $100 purchased me a producer's license to put my shingles up. And so this went on for a while and uh, I got, I broke into the industry, you know, 20th Century Fox, worked with Gene Alexander, you know, James Earl Jones, we did The Great White Hope. I worked with, my favorite one was, 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 Quinn, he was my favorite actor. He was with a Metron Golden Mayors uh, actor. We did a thing uh, called Flap about the the, uh, student riots at Columbia University against the war, Vietnam War. Flap. Quinn, Anthony Quinn. That's who I'm talking about. (laughs) And I remember working with him. He plays chess on the set. And Paul Masursky was the director. And I got that job for $25 and a box of lunch in 1968 <laughs> in, a, in a lunch box. Let me ask you. Yeah. In those moments when you are in front of Anthony Quinn, for example, any of those memories um, from your past when you were a child, when you were between three and six, did they came back to your mind? Actually... What's what I, as I'm speaking now are things that I've forgotten. Every episode in my life is just what it is, an episode. When it's concluded, I move on to the next chapter. That's not to say they're not there. Of course they're there. But I don't spend the time. Like I've had students where I teach at Benedict College, teach theater as a professor in the theater operation manager and the director of the theater ensemble and the playwright of the college um, come to me and say, with photos, and say, hey, is this you? You know, and I, yeah, where you get that from? I don't tell them, I'm this, I'm that, look, I did this. I, think, I don't think about it. Only thing I think about is today, right now. Because as a child, I was taught very on that tomorrow is the day you thought about yesterday, so I must always pay attention to today. And do today what they say, don't put off till tomorrow. Which is, well, I live by that. Who was it that told you that? My great grandmother mm-hmm. told me that. You know, birds of a feather flock together, you know, association brings on assimilations, you know. Uh, all you have to do in this world is do and be, be and do, and you can write volumes on that, fill this whole library. You know, little tiny little jewels and rubies and pearls like that, that today, you know, I have, they benefit me. So, no, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about when I was a child. I was just thinking about, damn, oh, this is Anthony Quinn right here. Paul Missouri over there, and I'm doing this job, and I'm, well, I'm, what the director tells me to do is what I'm doing, and later if the camera picks me up, fine. If it don't, I'm doing what I was asked to do, and somehow Paul Missouri called me up, Missouri called me over. He said, I'm breaking the set down for a two-hour break. I've got another job for you. I like the way you work. 
you know, to work on different sets. And I didn't do all major roles in the beginning. Now I want to make that straight. You know, I did bit parts and stuff like that. But it was accountable. I mean, it was. And then I decided I'm going to go to school. I need to learn about what I've been doing all my life. That's what I started thinking about. I need to learn about what I have been doing. Not only that, I didn't even know where I was at. I wanted to find out where am I at? I heard it was the American dream, but what is that? I didn't spend the time to find who are these people? Where they come from? Why are we all here? And so I, I enrolled into Los Angeles City College, where it was really at one of the top-notch theater academies in the nation, third in the, uh, internationally. And, and, and I auditioned and got into that school, and that exposed me to a lot of things. And you know Mike, Mike, Mark Hamill from Star Wars? I was his publicity agent in college. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there was a lot of it. Lionel from uh, a Good Times. I mean, go, what was it moving on up to the big time? I forgot the name of that thing with Sherman Hemsley and the. We all were there together, you know. Uh, um, Susanna uh, Passe, a uh, producer from Motown. All of us was there together. So, and then from there, I got uh, recruited to go to UCLA under what was known as an Upward Bound Scholarship. Uh, they wanted me to go in and to, as a mission really, to get into the theater arts department. Paul Williams, the actor, had went in and was the first uh, uh, man of color to break into the acting department. And now there's a directing department. And I got into there. And so, um, that was a whole another world that introduced me to uh, another form of theater that dealt with community, social is issues, social justices, and I was assigned to Mufundi Institute on 103rd in Wilmington in Watts, which is where Kawanza evolved from and came out of. And there I um, was the artistic director and wrote a play called Search, dealing with people's, this is all out of UCLA, as I indicated, I haven't left that arena. Um, it's, it's in this search of finding who I am in the midst of everything, and taking all the anthropological courses, cultural, social, physical, all of these kinds of things, uh, I began to become more and more conscious, not only of my surroundings, with the surroundings of peoples. I got caught up with Cesar Chavez, I don't know if you know him, the farm worker thing. And, um, and so therefore, Paul Bullock from the industrial relationship on the state level, because uh, the Ujima village and the Mothers of Watts had Ernest Williams III write out an agreement in blood. And I took that back to UCLA and said, these people are serious. And they said, this is phenomenal. And they passed it on to the state, and the state passed it to their industrial relations. And Paul Bullock came down and said, what do you need? And so then we started developing uh, because uh, you had already had the early uh, Watts riots 
and but never there was never an explanation as to what really happened. What's the root cause of things? And people was barricaded in their buildings. Little children. It was a lot of fear. There was they didn't know what to do. This and that. And I said, Oh my goodness. And see, I was looking to. to continue on in the Hollywood, mm -hmm. you know, to go in there and become a Mongol mm -hmm. in, the, in the motion picture industry. Now here I am in, in Watts, in a community, dealing with people who are caught up with basic everyday needs, and especially the children. Now if I thought of myself as a child, it might have been there at that point, because I looked at them, and they were nowhere near where I was at at the age of three. They were deficit, you know, in a knowledge and awareness and that kind of thing, and now here I am. Well, I was kind of reluctant to get involved in the very beginning, you know, because then I was kind of getting kind of used to the materialistic world, but then I had to leave it alone, you know, and so go in there. So this is where... I began to become that artist that suffered, uh, that artist that bled, that artist that pain to get out and mesh out the truth, and which became my thesis from my graduation from the university. And that's already logged in. And that, that was a powerful piece of blood-wrenching work uh, without, uh, I mean, just being without trying to be appeasing or pleasing, or, or maybe I'll make it shine like this, or maybe I'll, I'll do this. And I, I, think, I think that is the epitome of critical thinking and critical analysis, when you can flesh out the truth, or whatever that is, and the truth can only be uh, defined, at, for me at that time, as within the people. Do you remember the first day when you were performing on the streets in New York. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, like I said, uh, me and the guys that would leave home. Were you scared? Were you excited? No, 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 I don't know. I wasn't. Like you were little, three? You, yeah, but wasn't, see, you, you think about what you know. Mm -hmm. As three years old, it don't fit my package. We were nowhere like what a three-year-old is today. I so, would love to hear a little bit more yeah. um, about all your memories with your grandmother and their <laughs> saying, the says, um, well, she, my she grandmother, told you. she told me that I am a king, that when she came to this country on the ship, that uh, in her village, she uh, the houses was like in a I guess semi-square where you had houses along here and you had up in the center and she lived there because her father was the chief or the leader of that village. And, and, and that's my lineage with her as far as royalty is concerned. And she told me that uh, when she would wake up in the morning she would take her daily constitution through her village. Now, this is the first time I've heard the word constitution. So I didn't, you know, and this wasn't like in school. My first school was with my great-grandmother. And so 
And she said, uh, you need to take a daily constitution for your life. And then we would uh, lie out at night on a clear night on a little mound, and she would teach me the constellations. And she would show me, and I could see everything that she was teaching me and showing me about how the story fits right in with the constellation. And that was verified when I was about to graduate from um, UCLA and I needed astronomy because as a director, I needed to study every facet of a human being, even that which in astronomy. So Abel Spencer was the foremost astrologer or astrologist at that time. I had to see him. And he says, well, you need, before you take astrology two, you need to take one. I said, but that's going to hold me back. And I told him the story that I just told you about my great-grandmother. And he pulled out the, from his bottom drawer of his desk some plates and put them on the table. And he says, identify these. And I did. And I was off to astronomy too. So I thanked my great-grandmother. And uh, she'd been with me all this time too, you know, because she's the one that told me about the ancestors and she told me about her taking her place among the ancestors and she taught me, uh, she said that she would always be there to protect and intercede and that had happened. You know, I always can feel her when I feel a warm breeze brushed by my cheeks, then I know I need to start going that way because if I continue this way, there's going to be some danger there. And I would always make that move, and I kind of would get in a position and look back and say, wow, yeah. The protection. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm born with the veil. She says, I'm born with the veil over my face. I'm just, you know, I've been raised by nature with the overlapping of the universe, you know. Um, I think when I I think when I walk down the streets or this, I don't think people recognize me or even know that I'm among them, because I don't put myself in that pos position to be recognized or even acknowledged. Mm -hmm. I try to maintain a posture within the spirit, the spirit that which that comforts me, and provide me with the nourishment that materialistic does not provide for me. It can only be a physical, superficial uh, moment where spiritually it's for now and everlasting and evermore to be. Did you mention where your grandmother was from? No, right? No, but, you know, um, I've seen her when I traveled to Kemet. I say Kemet and not Egypt because Aristotle called it Egypt. When he mm. got there, it was Kemet. When he got there with Alexander... He called it Egeus, which evolved into the word Egypt. Mm -hmm. So in Kemet, when I was there to travel among, uh, to along the Nile, among the Nubian people, I chose for them to lead me and take me into places that far removed from tourism, I saw. And when I spoke to them about some of the things uh, of my experience with my great-grandmother, she said, oh, yeah, I know. We know, we know, we know. Because she said when she took her daily constitution to her village, she said she would look, and on the left was like a slope from a, coming down from mountain areas, and she could see the caravans. 
And the carrot plants, I was always told, was associated with merchants. And she would see that. So I knew it was somewhere in the sub-Saharan uh, area, you know. So your mind was in another different location from where you were at that time when she were, you were listening to that story. Oh, no, no, I would not hear when I, she talked. When she told me stories, I was wish, where she was at. I would be right into the stories. I would be living them. I mean, she could talk into my ears, and from, from my mind's eye would be like a projector. And, and the screen would be wherever I'm looking at, the sky or whatever. And I could see and be into what she was saying. And this, of course, this was before television, uh, uh, you know, uh, computers, uh, uh, cell phones, for all of that. You know, I think my imagination was an asset. Any particular story that touched your heart and your treasure until now? <laughs> she told me when the ship landed, and I think it was somewhere around Port Royal, in Beaufort, she said uh, she saw this woman with this parasol, right? And she was standing there with this parasol. The woman was wearing some type of seersucker kind of thing with little flowers in it. And the, 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 the hat seemed to have some of the same images that what she was wearing. And she had gloves on, and she had these a pair of shoes in her hand. And she told me as the ship was coming in and she's looking at this and she's focusing on this woman. She says, I knew that that woman was going to take me. And she did. And then she says, and she made me put on those shoes. And my feet hurt even till this day. That story stuck with me. And she was so vivid with it, you know. Oh, 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 there was one more, and, and this was, I did, I was afflicted by the polio um, epidemic, and I think it was 1947, was it? And uh, as a child, so I was paralyzed from my head to, the, to my toe. And I must say this for those children that might listen to this, um, be careful on what you say to your parents. To their own self be true. I was running up and down the streets in Brooklyn after coming from the South with no shoes on, you know. And my mother told me, you wear shoes when you're up here. And I got caught up into a thrill running with them. Oh, just, <laughs> I mean, just caught up. I mean, the thrill took me away. It's like I wasn't even nowhere else but in that moment. When she was coming home from work, she was a nurse, and I was supposed to have been there. Um, to take care and watch over my brother and my sisters. And she tapped me, and when she tapped me, and I come to my senses, what followed that was resentment. You know, how dare she take me out of this moment that I'm in? You know, as I'm coming to my senses, this is what's happening. And so uh, she says, you know, I want you upstairs you know, you wash up, take a bath, and I want you to take your brother out uh, 
in his stroller and sit under the tree and don't move because I need to take a nap. She's just coming off from work. Well, the brother's going to anchor me where I won't be able to move, so I resented that. And I remember my father once saying, uh, you know, watch getting in just cold water or getting in just hot water because you can bring your body into shock and can cause damages. I said, so I'm going to run a, just nothing but cold water and I'm going to jump in this cold water and then something's going to happen to me and they're going to be sorry. And I did that and this, this I'm fuming now because now I got to take him downstairs when all of a sudden going down the stairs my body was like lifeless and I rolled down the stairs and I fell out on my back. And it's like I was dead. I was lifeless. And my mother came down. And then on the inside, I was trying to tell her, you know, I'm alive. Please don't throw no dirt on me. But what happened was I was in the eye and lung. But while I was in there and the body was lifeless, I discovered the brain. And within the brain was the notion, you got to be truthful. You got to tell the truth to your part of this virus. And that was when I had to be able to admit, like I did just now, my role, my part that contributed to this virus. And my great-grandmother came, and she was very old, well in her, over her hundreds, and she put her finger out and pointed at me, says, I told you better than this, I taught you better than this, that in the beginning was darkness, and then they would be light and, uh, and left. And I fell out into something. In a, a moment, my body was like going through a, a funnel, a black funnel. And the blackness was so black, I started to shudder and come out and wake up. And a voice said, I said there would be darkness. And then there would be light. And I let go. And as I let go, it looked like in the bottom of that pit was a speck. And my body rushed in it and hit it. And it broke into zillions of pieces of brilliant light, and I found myself running up and down the hospital wards, hooping and hollering, oh, whoa. And all the crippled kids on the ward were saying, go, David, go. And the nurses were saying, it's a miracle. And the brain told me, yeah, they're going to make you an experiment. I said, call my mother, UL70233, and tell her to come get me. And they didn't know what else to do but do that because I needed her to come so that I would not become someone's guinea pig. The stories that you heard when you were a child, those stories with your grandmother, do you think that they inspired you to be the person you are Absolutely. Now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've come in, in as, as I've traveled through this land, I've come in contact with poisonous men and women who are uh, into all kind of wicked things that attempted to lead me into it. And many times I also was with them until I realized what I was, this den I was in, this den of thieves, this, this nest of viciousness, and get up and leave. And in one case I remember once, it was the second floor and there was this landing, I jumped out the window and got away, you know, because um, because of that, to keep moving, you know, that I'm, 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 I'm here in this world, but I'm here for a reason, you know, 
not to be abused or misused or to abuse or misuse anybody else. You know, I'm grateful that uh, people have contacted me after not seeing me for 60 years and say, hey, you know, that's, that's like, wow. To me, ooh, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, there was no nothing burned. I can go back to Brooklyn. You know, I can go back to Los Angeles or wherever, you know, and without ducking and dodging. David, it has been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming to Bibli Observatory podcast and sharing your personal story. You're welcome. And thank you for being here with us today, and thank you to our listeners. You can find Bibli Observatory on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so send us your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Bibli Observatory is a collaborative literacy initiative to connect our communities and children with the joy of listening, reading, and writing those memories from childhood that changed our lives. Thank you for listening.